Hello, good morning. Oh, this is nice. Uh, um, at Swindon, we have, we have these little things for the things. So this has got loads of space on it, which is lovely. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege being invited to come. I know many of you didn't have much of a choice, I suppose. But <laughs> it's a real privilege being invited to come and speak to you anyway. And it's just such a, uh, it's such a great thing to be able to come and have friends from other regions beyond churches. You know, we may never have met before, but actually somehow we're united together in family as part of Christ's body and as part of regions beyond and all that that means. So it's a, it really is a privilege being here. Um, as Mark said, my name's Callum. I work for Gateway Church in Swindon. I've been married to my wife Katie now for eight years. We have a little boy, Eli, he's two years old. Um, another one on the way, actually, which is very exciting, during January. Um, Mark did mention that I was their son-in-law. I think, in my not-so-humble opinion, I am their best son-in-law. Um, so hopefully the other one's not listening. Um, and I'm, I just wanted to say before I start really, as I'm sure many of you know, I just think Mark and Jackie are excellent. They really are so good. And um, they've kind of been parents to me growing up, really, especially, especially Mark. Um, my dad was in and out a lot. He's not a Christian, my dad. And so Mark has been a real father to me throughout the years. And I'm sure many of you have now experienced or are experiencing the same love from them that I've experienced growing up. So... Um, so I'll stop before Mark's head gets any bigger. <laughs> um, so we're going to be reading from John 2, verse 13, and Jesus cleanses the temple. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Father, we thank you for your words. Father, we thank you that it is living and active and sharp, Lord, that it cuts us to the heart. Father, and I just pray this morning as I speak and as we, as we worship together in this moment, Father, won't you come and be with us by your, presence, by your spirit, Lord, won't you come and be present with us. Father, I pray you would speak to us individually, Lord, I pray you'd speak to Apex, I pray you'd help me to speak clearly and well, and I pray that you'd be glorified through it all. Amen. So, as I said, Eli, Eli turned two uh, this summer. Katie and I do, I say it fairly often, but we do fairly often cheat a little bit at parenting and give him the iPads and, you know, shove, waffle the Wonder Dog on from CBeebies or something. It gives us five minutes peace. Um, and the thing about Eli is that he doesn't really know we've given him something precious, something expensive. He doesn't really know we've, we've given him, you know, this iPad or this iPhone that costs 
a fair bit of money and we can't replace. For him, it's just a thing he watches CBeebies on. And honestly, the amount of times he has dropped it, thrown it, you know, we've got a really steep, we've got a really steep drive and we, you know, we give it to him in the back of the car to stop him from going to sleep on the way home and take him out the car and he's dropped it and it just slides down the drive to the bottom. But miraculously, never once has it broken. Um, you know, we tell him, no, no, don't drop it, don't throw it, it's going to break. But he's just not really conscious that he's mistreating something precious. Um, and rather amusingly, a month or so ago, actually, Katie was heading out uh, without Eli, put, put her phone in her pocket, felt something, pulled it out, and the screen was smashed. Um, so I'm not saying anything about my wife's hips, but um, Eli didn't break it. So, um, And when we look at this passage in John, at first read, it doesn't really look like the money changers and the, and the sellers are doing anything. They're not mistreating anything. Surely they're just helping people facilitate the worship that God's commanded. You know, believers would have traveled for miles on pilgrimage to um, Jerusalem for the Passover. And, you know, you can imagine it's difficult driving oxen or sheep that far and still reaching it on time. You know, they're just, surely they're just trying to help facilitate the worship that God's commanded them. But Jesus, it says, sees things differently. He knows they're mistreating what's precious, what's sacred. He doesn't rush in hot-headed. He takes the time to make a whip, of course, um, and he drives them out of the temple like they're, you know, like they're animals themselves. They're driven out with the oxen and the sheep. So why does he react this way? Very simply, he knows their hearts. Just in verse 25, a few verses later, John tells us that Jesus knew what was in man, he knows they're not being helpful for the long-traveling pilgrim. They're just being greedy. It's love of money and not love of God that's driving what they're doing. They're using what is sacred for their own gain, turning the temple into a marketplace. Let me just read uh, Malachi 3 to you. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple... And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years." Malachi is saying that when God comes to his temple, he's going to purify it. He's going to refine it. He's going to make it holy. And it's exactly what Jesus is doing in this story. He comes to his temple and he cleanses it. He purifies it. He's denouncing the impure worship of Israel. And the church has become a bit of a place of, of kind of consumerism, hasn't it? Spiritual consumerism, you know. Maybe you know somebody who's kind of gone church shopping. Maybe you've done it yourself once or twice. You know, who's got the best kids' work? Who's got the best worship, the best preacher? Who can I get the most from and give the least to? Um, We have two sites at at Gateway, two congregations at Gateway, one in the west of Swindon and one in the east of Swindon. Uh, Katie and I go to Gateway West. Um, Just a few weeks ago, I noticed a couple who normally go to our east site. Um, I noticed them sitting there in the west congregation. Um, 
And I mentioned it to our East site leader the next week in the office and just said, oh, I noticed them here. Is there a reason? Are they moving sites? What's going on? And, you know, he said, oh, he'd had a conversation with them and, and they thought the worship was getting a bit subdued in the, in the East. And so they wanted to move over to the West to try somewhere different. Um, and the reality is when you have multiple, multiple sites or congregations, you kind of you form community and family and friendship in the site that you're in because it's difficult to do it when you're in two different places. Um, and at least in Gateway, each site kind of carries a heart for something very slightly different. So our east site meets in, meets in a school, meets in a secondary school. It's a fairly run-down kind of um, failing secondary school, but the head teacher is a Christian. She comes, to, she comes to Gateway, she goes to the east site, and we've been able to you know, um, bless them with money for disadvantaged kids. We do mentoring on a Monday morning with um, some of the pupils in the school, um, all kinds of things. And, and this couple were just willing to up and move from the community, the family they had in the East, willing to up and move from the heart they'd shared in for the school just because the bands didn't float their boat anymore. Spiritual consumerism is a problem in the church. And I don't know about you, but I, I do quite often find myself getting into that kind of mindset. It's really easy after a Sunday morning to, to get in the car or to get back home and turn to each other and say, oh, worship was difficult this morning, wasn't it? It, wasn't, it didn't really do it for me. Or preacher, he was okay, but you know, he didn't, it didn't really speak to me, his message. Um, and you know, you end up making a judgment on whether a Sunday service is good or not based on how you felt, based on whether it met your emotional or physical or spiritual needs or not, and not whether, not based on whether God is glorified or not, which is what we should be judging a Sunday morning on. Uh, maybe, maybe for you, maybe you don't get into that kind of mindset. Maybe, maybe it's just me, but, you know, you could be thinking, sure, it's a problem, consumerism's a problem in the church, but it's not really my problem. I'm, I serve at church, I give money... I'm part of a community, and I'm sure you'd be right. Most of, us, most of us aren't going around to different churches trying to find the best worship or the best kids group, um, hopping from place to place. We know things aren't perfect where we are, but we're committed to being here because this is the family God's placed us in. But isn't it easy for pride to sneak in without us noticing? Isn't it easy for our serving, our giving, our... Even our, even our being part of community to become not just about serving the church, loving others, worshipping God, but to let it become a little bit about us as well. We can become consumers of people recognising us, of people thanking us for our serving. We can become consumers even in the way we relate to others, always talking about us, always needing my problems to be fixed, always needing you, know, you to talk about me, you to listen to me. We can become consumers of that feeling you get when... You see the offering basket go by and the person next to you puts in a 20 and you know you're giving £500 a month. Um, And it can just become normal, can't it? Just a part of things, just the way we do it, not even really that conscious. Isn't it easy for us to do the same thing as the sellers and the money changers and to use what's sacred for our own game? So let me ask you to reflect honestly for a moment, if I can. Where in your serving, in your giving, where in your, in your life are you using what's sacred, what's holy for your own gain? Where have you let pride or spiritual consumerism slither its way into your worship? Where has it become impure? 
this isn't the only time we read about Jesus clearing the temple. Um, we read elsewhere in the other gospel accounts that um, on clearing them out, Jesus, Jesus tells the, the Jewish leaders there that his father's house should be a house of prayer for all nations. <clears throat> and the marketplace, both here in John's gospel and in the other gospels, would likely have been in a place called the Court of the Gentiles. Um, this is a place where those outside of Israel, outside of the people of God, would be able to gather and they could come so far into the temple grounds um, and that's where they'd be able to worship. Um, and they've set up their marketplace in what they think is the least important place. It's the place where the outsiders are. You see, in cleansing the temple, Jesus isn't just denouncing that the worship of Israel is impure. He's also prophetically inviting all peoples to come and worship him, the new temple. So let's, uh, let's just flick to 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the Lord has rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Wow. See, amazingly, Peter tells us that we also are being built up like living stones into the new temple with Jesus as the cornerstone. We are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. You see, it's not just our worship that's holy, that's sacred. It's the church, it's the body, the relationships you have with each other in this room and we have with each other, that's holy, it's sacred. It's, we're a part of the new temple. You, the church is not just some club of like-minded individuals, is it? Of course it's not. <laughs> Even in this room, there'll be people who would never normally find themselves in a room together. Um, and that's why church is sometimes so difficult, isn't it? We're learning to love, to serve, to pastor, to one another, each other, with people who are completely different from us in, in almost every single way, apart from somehow, mysteriously, God, by his spirit, is binding us together, closer than blood. There's a guy who, um, who every so often comes to Gateway, um, He's been coming for a long time. He's quite unusual. He's not got an easy family situation. Um, but because he's been coming for a long time, I, you know, we, we know each other. He's very friendly. He always gives a hug. Um, but he's, <laughs> he's exposing my sinful heart for a moment. He's, he's quite loud, and he often doesn't smell fantastic. Um, and he'd come up to me on a Sunday morning, he'd come up smiling, you know, hi, how are you doing, giving me a hug, being very loud. And <laughs> honestly, in my heart, I was just dismissive. Um, I wasn't even really conscious, I suppose, that I, was, that I was being that way towards him. I'd be polite and I'd be 
friendly on the outside, but inside in my head, I'd just be thinking how I could exit this conversation as quickly as possible so that I can speak to somebody more like me, speak to somebody more important. Isn't it easy for us to treat the church, the relationships we have with each other, as something that serves us, often at the expense of those not like us? They become invisible and unimportant. And again, it can just become normal, just a part of how we do things, not even really that conscious. Now, I read a book by a guy called Francis Chan called Letters to the Church, and he writes a chapter in there about what it really means to love one another for the church, what it really means to, to pursue unity as a church. And as I read this chapter, it just kind of hit home. Um, I realized my sinful heart and my sinful attitude towards this guy that comes to Gateway and realized that I was mistreating what is sacred. And Jesus praying to the Father in in John 17, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus prays to the Father that his followers would be one, would be united, just as he and the Father are. I'm called to love this guy. I'm called to be united to him in the same way that Jesus is united and Jesus loves the Father. And Francis Chan, in this book, he asked the question, do you even, do you even believe this is possible, let alone are you actually pursuing it? So let me ask you the same question. <laughs> Do you believe this kind of unity is possible? Do you believe this kind of love is possible here at Apex? In your home church, if you're a visitor, do you believe this kind of love is possible? Are you pursuing it? Jesus invites all peoples to come and worship him. Where are you treating what is sacred, these relationships we have with each other, as if they are unimportant? You see, we need to take stock of where our worship and our relationships are becoming impure, both personally and as a church. We need to stop mistreating what's sacred, and we need to start doing it before it settles in, becomes too ingrained to root out. The problem is that we're about as capable of sorting out our own impurities as Israel was. Just look at human history and the world around us, and you'll realize that humanity always falls short eventually, doesn't it? Look at the period of the judges in the Bible, the cyclical story of Israel's failure, corruption and worship of the gods, and then God's rescue. So it says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Their worship was impure. It was resolved for a time when God raised up a judge. But when the judge died again, it just simply got worse, worse and worse, going round and round in this ever-spiralling downwards story. More corrupt, more impure. Or think of the story of Israel's kings. King after king, again, it uses the same phrase, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then you get this story of Josiah. He repairs the temple, he rediscovers the book of the law, and begins dealing with the impure worship of Israel. 
all is sorted. Right worship is restored. It says there was no king like him, which is quite a statement when you think of the likes of David. But Josiah dies, the next king comes along and again does what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, we're incapable of removing our own impurities, of sorting out our own impure worship and relationships. But the good news is that Jesus, in his mercy, comes in and disrupts us. He takes every single aspect of the sin, of the unholiness in our lives, and he confronts it. You see, it's not just judgment as Jesus is cleansing the temple. It's not just judgment of Israel. It's mercy. Judgment is leaving them there in their sin. Jesus wants to wake us up and drive out the sin that we're not even really that conscious of. He confronts us in our sin and impurity, but in his mercy, he doesn't leave us there. He cleanses us. The Jewish leaders, they ask Jesus for a sign to show by what authority he's done all of this. And he answers by saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John tells us Jesus was talking about his body. You see, the same spiritual consumerism which destroys the Jerusalem temple just 40 or so years after this event destroys Jesus' body for 30 pieces of silver. Their worship had become so impure, so corrupted, that they didn't even recognize their God. They crucified him. And the disciples are reminded of, of Psalm 69. Jesus is so zealous for pure and right worship in his people that it physically consumes his body. But he tells them, in three days I'll raise it up. He lays his life down for our sin and then in three days he raises his own body. You see, something greater than the temple is now here. The hour has come when true worshippers, you and me, doesn't matter if we're Jewish or not, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For all time and for all peoples, there is a new place where heaven and earth meet, a new place of pure and right worship, a new and better temple, and that is Jesus. Let me read this quote to you. We see at the cross the body of Christ is where the love of God and the holiness of God collide where God's love for you is met with God's wrath for you, and where Jesus becomes God's shield for you, so that the wrath of God against you would be exhausted for all time. You see, our sin does not keep him dead. God's wrath against us has been exhausted on Jesus. And we know Paul says that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're to be pitied, doesn't he? He says we're to be pitied. Our faith is futile, and we're still in our sin. But Jesus overcomes sin and death through his resurrection. And in doing so, he becomes the fulfillment of the temple and all that it pointed to. His sacrifice cleanses us from our impurity. So what are we to do? Very simply, we're to have a bigger and better view of Jesus. By the power of the Spirit, we're to be so zealous for him that he consumes us. He's the only way for us to treat what's sacred as it should be treated. He's the only way that our impure relationships and our impure worship can be made holy. Only because of the cross can we change. 
So we're just going to um, take a moment to respond by sharing communion. Just a short talk today. (laughs) If you've realized that your worship has become impure, that you've let pride or consumerism seep in, that it's become too much about you and not enough about God, before we share communion, can I just encourage you to take a few moments and just confess it to God? Take a moment to repent. He's faithful to forgive our sins because we're covered by his blood. And if you've realized that you're treating the community, the church, the family you're in, whether it's here at Apex or, or somewhere else, as if it's unimportant, if you've realized there are people that you've been mistreating, that you've been dismissing, whether actively or without really noticing, can I just encourage you to resolve it? Maybe if they're here this morning, as we share communion, you can grab some bread and some grape juice and go towards them and just ask for their forgiveness. If they're not here, maybe you want to get out your phone and just text them and say, can we talk later? Whatever it is, can I just encourage you to put those relationships right? And if you're here this morning but you're not a Christian... I simply want to tell you that Jesus loves you. He loves you. He longs to show you mercy this morning. He laid his life down so that he could pay the price for everything you and I have done wrong and will do wrong. And he's raised from the dead to win us life. And he says that that is life that should be enjoyed and lived to the fullest. Maybe you want to invite Jesus into your life this morning. Jesus tells a story of a man who... He found a pearl of immeasurable value. And when he found it, he went and sold everything he owned so that he could get this pearl. You see, inviting Jesus into your life is is costly sometimes. It costs you everything. It may cost you everything, but it's worth it, just like this man with the pearl. And if you're not ready to take that step yet, that's fine. Please just feel free to sit and reflect as, as we share communion. Maybe you just want to ask God some questions. Is he there? Can he help you? Um, but just before we do share communion, I just wanted to remind us of, of what it is that we're doing when we, when we share communion, of what it is that we're supposed to be remembering and we're supposed to be looking forward to. just wanted to remind us of some of the richness of this simple meal. You see, when we share communion, it speaks of blood, signifying the life of Jesus flowing through our veins, as we sang earlier. It speaks of sacrifice. It calls us back to the Passover lamb whose blood was shed that the angel of the Lord would pass over Israel. It speaks of Jesus as being the true Passover lamb whose innocent blood allows God's wrath to be exhausted as our sins are forgiven. It speaks of rescue, of Israel's rescue from slavery to Egypt and our rescue from sin because of the cross. It speaks of feasting, pointing us towards the day when we will drink wine and eat good food with Jesus at the great wedding banquet. It speaks of thanksgiving for gifts. Thanks for gifts of everyday provision from God, like, like food and good wine, but ultimately thanks for the gift of God's own son. It speaks of redemption, reminding us of the story of Boaz and Ruth, the kinsman redeemer who shares bread and wine with Ruth, and points us to Jesus in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Why have we found favour in your eyes, Lord Jesus, that you should take notice of us? 
It speaks of the symbolism of wine and vineyards and grapes. It reminds us of the 12 spies reporting on the promised land, bringing a taste of what's to come, fresh grapes from the land of promise for us who are wandering in the desert. It brings past, present, and future together into one moment. Whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, the present, you proclaim the Lord's death, the past, until he comes in the future. But it's not just symbolism and meaning, is it? It's powerful and it acts. Andrew Wilson says um, in one of his books, when we celebrate the sacraments, baptism and communion, we do things that do things. It announces to the principalities and powers that Jesus is Lord and that the cross has won the victory over all evil. And as we perform this act of spiritual warfare, we're supposed to be encouraged to put Christ's victory into practice as we go into our homes and workplaces. As we take it, the Holy Spirit's mysteriously at work so that we actually participate in the body and blood of Christ somehow. Jesus is presented to us in this meal. He's not just represented by it. He's present, feeding us with himself. And it's why Paul says if we share it in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. It brings a common union, hence the name. We are brought together with Christ as part of his body and with Christians throughout history and all over the world who have shared this same meal. We are one because we share in one bread. Somehow, we are more family here, even though I've never met some of you before, than I am with my dad, who is not a Christian, because of the blood of Jesus. So can I just invite you to stand, if you are able? A band happy just to come up and tinkle. (laughs) Um, I'm just going to pray, and then hand over to Mark, because I don't normally know how you do communion here. Father, thank you that you interrupt us. You confront us in our sin. Thank you that you don't just leave us there, but in your mercy, you cleanse us. Lord, would you convict us of where we've let our worship become impure, of where we've let it become about us? Lord, would you convict us of where our relationships have become impure, of where you have cheated others as unimportant, as not worthy of our time or attention or focus or love? Father, we're sorry that we have mistreated what is sacred. Lord, would you come and fill us with your spirit again this morning? That our gaze may be filled with the cross. That we may be so zealous for Jesus that he consumes us entirely. That he consumes our everything, our worship, our relationships, our life, every worshipful moment. And Jesus, as we share communion, we just thank you for this simple meal, Lord. Lord, we thank you that as we take it, Lord, we are, we are being united to you and to each other in this room. Lord, that we look back to the cross, that you have won victory for us. Lord, that you have wiped away our sin. Lord, you've taken it on yourself and you have dealt with it. Lord, and as we share it, we also look forward to the day, Lord, when we will share it with you. Lord, when we will drink wine and eat bread in your presence face to face. Lord Jesus, we love you and we worship you this morning. We pray you be glorified in us. Amen.